0: Welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times best-selling author. Today's investors expect more than a transaction. They want a relationship. Show how your firm merges EQ and IQ with Orion's BFI20 a new shareable assessment developed by Dr. Daniel Crosby that provides you with emotional and attitudinal insights into clients to facilitate more meaningful investing conversations from day one. Get started today at orion.com forward slash B520.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. And today I am joined by return guest, Neil Beige, co-founder of the excellent behavioral finance consultancy shaping wealth he is an applied behavioral science and neuroeconomics aficionado and i must say a really great tour guide to the city of london
2: welcome to the show (laughs) (laughs) oh daniel it is great to be back i still think and talk about the day we spent me you and charlotte walking around london it was such fun um i hope we get the chance to do it again
1: oh i do too man i i swear this is embarrassing to admit but i had been to london previously and i didn't love it like i you know i was like ah it's fine like i just hadn't had the right person to show it to me because i can honestly say i loved it after i had uh you know sort of a skilled tour guide so i there's (laughs) there's probably a lesson in that you know sometimes we're quick to poo-poo something or write it off and maybe we just need to do a deeper dive
2: yeah, but you know what, Daniel, as well, as, uh, and I know this isn't what the purpose of this podcast interview is about, but, you know, the thing is, when you go to a city as a tourist, right, you tend to just do the main things that everybody else is doing. So in London, you know, Buckingham Palace, Downing Street, the Thames, you know, all, the, all of the things. But what you and I did and Charlotte did is we used our legs, and we just spent the entire day walking around London and we saw things that tourists just wouldn't see, but... Are the very fabric of what makes London London, and I think that just helps. You know, it 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 helps, right? So yeah, it was a great day,
1: absolutely unforgettable. Can't can't thank you enough for that. So Neil is a certified good dude, as you can tell him. You know, walking me and my daughter, I think twenty seven thousand steps around London. <laughs> <that day. laughs> I think that she still talks about how much her legs hurt, but it was all, all worth it. But. <laughs> You know, as a certified good dude, we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about advisor wellness today, and I think this is a topic that doesn't perhaps get enough of a of a good look. We're going to talk about how financial advisors can take care of themselves en route to taking care of their clients. But I want to start with uh, something I know that you have some opinions on and have done a lot of thinking on. And it's, it's an idea that I first encountered in my psychotherapeutic training. And it's this idea that some humanistic psychotherapists have. It's the idea that we can only take our clients as far as we have gone ourselves and that we must sort of, quote, unquote, do our own work first. Now, first of all, do, do you believe that? I mean, can we take our clients further than we've gone ourselves? And what does doing the work look like in the context of a financial professional?
2: Oh wow. Um another nice, easy question to start, Daniel. Thank you for that. Um you are so kind to that if that's what being kind is, man, I never want to get on your bad side. Um so I think it's important to I think it's important to understand what we mean by doing our own work, right? Before we get into the specifics of what it means for financial professionals. You know, so let's, let's get everybody on the same page, right? So for me, when, uh, when we refer to doing our own work, it kind of means that we need to focus, and it's really important to focus on our own emotional and psychological needs and issues before we even think about helping others with theirs. But, you know, and, and you know this, you know, that can actually be quite a deep and challenging process, right? But in essence, I think we need to explore and resolve and that's a really important word, resolve, our own issues and challenges and our own limitations so that we can become more self-aware and, I guess, more importantly, emotionally stable. Then we can help other people work through their stuff. But, you know, one more point on this before I look, oh, I answer specifically about financial professionals. And I say this from a place of experience. It's only when we work through our own issues and we have a A deeper more meaningful understanding of ourselves that we can actually be more empathetic and less judgmental of other people and then we can help them see the world differently now let's flip this into the world we work in financial services so what does doing the work mean in relation to that well it's kind of the same thing but more of a focus on helping or addressing our own um, attitudes beliefs and behaviors around money before we can effectively help our clients address their attitudes, beliefs and behaviors around money. So let's make this really interesting, right? because actually a way of doing that is by exploring your own money story and identify any of those emotional blocks or issues that you have towards money. And by the way, you know that does mean going quite deep and addressing some long-held beliefs you know and if we use the a, a, a movie kind of f- phrase, It's like an origins story. Um, But I'll say this, you know, and everything that I've just said, it's easier said than done. You know, self-reflection, personal growth, introspection, you know, they are really hard things to do. But in my opinion, and in all fairness, my experience, you know, they are absolutely crucial to maintaining a healthy relationship with money. And providing the best support that we can to our to our clients and you know sorry daniel one more thing before i i I stop talking you know and this is to do with personal growth so i think this is important you know as financial professionals we also need to be continuously updating our knowledge and our skills you know kind of understanding the latest research and trends further education attending conferences Listening to podcasts, you're welcome. Um, you know, basically professional development. You know, because they are all part of a growth mindset, and I think that is a key component in our ability to flourish, both personally and then to help other people flourish. Yeah.
1: So I'll, I'll sort of tell on myself. I was I was having a conversation yesterday with a friend, and and we were talking about a mutual friend, and. And the, the friend I was speaking to said, hey, you know, why does why does this friend, you know, engage in X, Y, Z behavior? Like, why, why, why do you think they do this thing that was sort of sort of puzzling to her? And I said, oh, you know, that that makes perfect sense in context because of, you know, ABC thing this person's been through. Yeah. And like, you know, when you when you understand their whole story, it, it actually makes a ton of sense and, and sort of here's why. And so she said, wow, that, you know, that, that really fits. I, I think you're right on. And she said, you know, what? what's sort of the parallel in your life? What's sort of, sort of the the story behind why you do the things that, that you do? And I was like, ah, let me get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just, it was like one of those moments. And it was actually around a financial consideration. And it was one of those moments where I was like, man, like we really can see each other better than we can see ourselves and we really do just have so much more clarity and it's just much easier like it's it's very easy for me to make an off-the-cuff observation about a friend of mine and why they spend money the way that they do it's very different for me to kind of like turn that back on myself and examined myself, and I I sort of said to this friend, I'm like, look, give me a day or two, and like I owe you a response because I gotta like figure this out. You know, this is crazy that I got that sort of you know plus by by this question, and it really is just a testament to the difficulty of doing our own work. I think
2: it's really difficult. It's very easy to sit in judgment of other people. It's incredibly difficult to sit in judgment of yourself. You know, uh, it, it's a skill that. I have been working on for a long long time have I perfected it absolutely not do I think I'll ever perfect it absolutely not I'm constantly learning about who I am and my place in the world and how I interact with other human beings how I behave and it's really hard it's hard work to say or to to recognize a a behavior in yourself that could be you know damaging or could be self-sabotaging you know it's really easy to look at. It's easy to look at someone and say, "Eat the salad while you're shoving a quarter pounder in your face." <laughs> it, it's really, it's it's easy, and and so part of what we're talking about here today is recognizing that in order to be, you know, in order for wellness and flourishing and thriving to be part of your life, you need to do some hard work.
1: Yeah. Well I think it I think it requires curiosity you know because my my observation about my friend wasn't uh, wasn't a, a judgment it was just sort of like why you know why do they spend money in the way that they do was sort of the question that was posed to me right and the answer was like oh no this this makes sense and I wasn't you know it wasn't a judgment or anything but I think sometimes when we when we look back on ourselves, we, we take a judgmental stance and we, we all have a vested interest in seeing ourselves as being good, smart, pious, you know, good friends, whatever. And I think there's judgment associated with all of those things. And I think if we can just have more curiosity and less judgment about our own behavior, then we're in a much better place to see why we do the things that we do.
2: Completely agree. Completely agree.
1: So sort of keeping with this topic, I want to talk about Carl Jung's idea of a wounded healer mm-hmm. and sort of just what it sounds like. It's this idea that, that oftentimes those in helping professions are drawn to these very professions uh, because of their own stories and their own wounds. And I mean, I would be the, you know, when people ask me why I went into psychology, it's like, well, because I was trying to figure myself out. And like, that is the that is true of every psychologist you talk to. I mean, there's no one uh, in this field who's well adjusted, Neil. It just doesn't happen. Like, just <laughs> we're just trying to trying to make sense of this mess between my ears. Yeah. You no. Know, so the idea here would be in in our world that that someone with a history of financial trauma may may feel called to to help others deal with the same. Uh, in terms of telling our own story, sharing our mm-hmm. own hurts. How can we walk the line between being vulnerable and human and approachable by giving glimpses into our own story without making the, the time with a client all about us?
2: Man, you ask good questions. Look, look you've just said something really important here, or two words of great importance. And those two words are helping profession. I think we sometimes forget that we are all in a helping profession. You know, we help other human beings plan for the life they want we help them along the way we deal with any stumbles or falls you now so when it comes to financial well-being we are the helpers now and that's important to recognize because if you look at the other forms of well-being you know physical spiritual emotional there are institutionalized and legitimate helpers available to us you know doctors clergy therapists or counselors so when it comes to financial well-being, you know, I, I stress this point, we are the helpers, right? So to your question, and you know I'm a sucker for anything, Carl Jung. So I know you, that's why you put it in here, right? So I get that people can be drawn to helping roles due to their own experiences and personal struggles and adversity. That's why, by the way, exploring your own money story is so important because it gives you the framework to be able to to. To address some deep-rooted challenges, you know. But even though telling our stories can, or or bringing our stories into our profession, can give us a unique understanding and empathy, it's also really important to be mindful about how we share our stories with our clients. Now, if I think of my own experience of spending time in a vulnerable place, talking about my deepest challenges, I think there are three things that i've experienced that i he- i think help make can help make conversations about clients and not about us right so which one's first the first one i guess is to set boundaries and guidelines about how uh, and what we share about ourselves you know if we're trying to help other people then yes i get it sharing a personal story might be appropriate in the context of building kind of empathy or rapport but it's really important that we keep the focus on the client and their needs second actually maybe this one should have been first you know you ask yourself why are you sharing you know before you share any personal experience with a client right you need to consider why and what you're sharing in the first place and how that might benefit the client yes you might help them that's true but there's always a risk that you sharing one of your stories can kind of inadvertently shift the focus onto you rather than them and, and that's never a great place to be. And I guess the third thing, which actually this, <laughs> this one should have been number one, um, you know, consciously focus on the client. You know, the purpose of sharing our personal experiences is to help other people feel understood and supported. And so it's really important to keep the focus on the client's needs and experiences and avoid using our personal stories as a way to draw attention to us and kind of our struggles. So I guess, you know, maybe, maybe what I should have just said was, you know, focus on the client and be conscious of what and why you're sharing something when I mean, that's a much shorter answer. Maybe I should have gone with that.
1: It's a, it's amazing how, how saying something out loud can help you think through it in real time. But I think you've done a great job. And at the, at the core of it is like you just said, it's a client focus and it's a focus on why, You know, because I was taking notes during during what you were saying, and it's like, yeah, you you've got to have a reason. You know, these these sort of unresolved, you know, these sort of unresolved pieces of us, these stories that we tell compulsively because we want empathy, or we want to be heard, or we want to be understood, or we want to be listened to. They can kind of leak out of us, (laughs) yeah. 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 They can kind of leak out of us on uh, inadvertently, Mm -hmm. and that may or may not be in the client's best best interest. But if we if we take the three part approach that you're talking about, you know, uh, be cognizant of their needs, focus on the why, make sure there's a purpose behind it. Yeah. I think it can do a lot to to knit two people together, you know, there's this great research on on who we like, right? So unsurprisingly, there's research on we like to do business with people we like, we like people who are like us and you know, one of the ways that you can prove you're like someone is, is sort of bonding around a shared struggle. And, and yet if you introduce it at the wrong time, it's, it's dismissive. You know, the the easiest example I can think of is when um, my sister-in-law passed away about five years ago, you know, it's like just watching people interact with my wife was so so fascinating and sort of maddening because people would say stuff like you know uh, you know they would learn that her sister died and it was like they would immediately jump in with their own story about you know uh, someone they had lost and they with you know to a person they they meant well hmm. it's like yeah she lost her sister a week ago they don't need to you know gotcha. that's right. She doesn't need to hear about Aunt Mabel right now. Like this is, you know, she needs she needs love and and empathy and, and a listening ear. And I think it, it has so much potential to bring two people together. But if but if misapplied, I think it can be, uh, you know, more harmful than good.
2: No, that's right. And you know, you know that the, the the way that the human brain works, and you and you know me, you know, this is what I've studied for a long, long time. The way the human brain works is, you know, we process. We process sound waves. So, you, you know, you are listening to my voice now. Your brain is processing those sound waves, you know, and 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 there's two parts of the brain, Broca's area and Wernicke's area, that are, are kind of doing two things. One is listening and one is formulating a response. And that means that as a human, we are always listening with an intent to reply. And the secret is to prevent the brain from triggering a response, a, a verbal response. It's to allow the brain to process the sound think about what you're hearing pause and know when and what to say and sometimes like in your wife's case you know she says oh i've just lost my sister you know we're listening with an intent to reply and that reply might be oh i lost my sister and when you go there you can't help but say and now let me tell you how i felt how i dealt with this what i went through you know and actually you're right all people want to know is oh i lost my sister i understand what you're going through if you want to talk about it i'm here they just want to know that you're there right some and you're right there's a time and a place to share our stories but part of it means that we have to address the very human part of always listening with an intent to reply the skill is being able to consciously pause and stop yourself talking when you know and only speak when the time is right yeah i
1: i love that i love that breakdown of the two parts of our brain and and you know We're wired like that because usually that's the right thing to do. Like If you're in conversation with someone, it's like, hey, look, a quick response, a quick listen, a quick response. That's exactly what the doctor ordered. But in these high stakes situations, when you're discussing something as sensitive as money, when you're discussing life and death and and all the things that financial planners are called on to discuss, Mm. uh, this natural reflexive action can, can lead us down a bad path. So I love that. Let's um, let's let's turn our attention now to, to taking care of advisors. You know, you, you talked earlier about how important it is that we realize that this is a helping profession. And I, I think I want to put an even finer point on that, put an exclamation point after it, because I think in other professions, you know, psychotherapy, doctor, uh, medical doctors, things like that, there's an understanding that the work is inherently stressful, that things like empathy fatigue, things like emotional, um, <clears throat> emotional contagion, like all of these things are present in that work. And because there's a realization of that, there are measures put in place to kind of be off ramps for that. You know, when I was a therapist, I had to have my own therapist. That was just sort of an institutional mandate. There was real recognition that, like, look, your job is hard and you're going to need someone to talk to about all the people that you are talking to. Yeah. I don't think a similar recognition exists in our profession. And I think that's a mistake. And I think that's borne out in some of the research that we're going to talk about mm. because a, a 2022 study by FPA found that 63% of investors were experiencing high or moderate amounts of stress. Okay, we get it. But this is what's wild. The number among financial advisors was 71%. (laughs) So I'm curious to know from you, what are the most common sources of stress for financial advisors? and And what is the fallout of stressed
2: advisors trying to comfort stressed clients? You know what? Let's let's start this one by addressing the elephant in the room, right? A lot of the time, even when we work in a big organization with hundreds of people, it can feel lonely. You know, and a point I want to make here Daniel and you'll know this, you know, loneliness doesn't mean being alone, it means being disconnected. It's about psychological isolation. And for the psych geeks who are listening to this, you know, that's like the third Tier of maslow's hierarchy of needs right it's so important we want to feel connected and loneliness can make us feel disconnected so you know people advisors and you know i talk to advisors all over the world daily and this is echoed in those conversations now advisors are feeling isolated and overwhelmed you know think of what we've been through as a collective species over the last few years right you know no one is immune from this stuff and then on top of that you know, advisors have to deal with stuff like market volatility, regulatory changes, client demands, business targets. you know it's hard work. and you know what? It can sometimes feel like it's you versus the world. I get that you know, and I know the statement that I'm about to make is obvious and yet I'm going to make it anyway, you know financial advisors are human beings too. <laughs> you know they're not immune, you know that they, they can't be immunized from their own. Personal stresses, relationships, health issues, children, home life—it's really hard. And you know, there's a brilliant quote from um, from Richard Thaler um, when he says, "People aren't dumb; the world is hard." And that's a great qu- kind of quote to sum up w- w- what I've just kind of said. But you know, this can have far-reaching implications. You know, we know this from mental health research that when we're stressed, overwhelmed, anxious, burned out you know, it impacts our ability to help other people. We know that we communicate less effectively and we know that it impacts the way that we make decisions. But I think the most important thing the research shows us is that it makes us unhappy. Now, so so to your question specifically, you know, the fallout of stressed advisors trying to comfort stressed clients, well, I mean, that's a significant challenge, right? the chance of unintentionally transferring their own stress onto a client has to be pretty high so an already stressed client gets another dose of anxiety and uncertainty you know but i mean i said this already right i've studied the human brain for a long time and we know that in a state of stress especially when our sympathetic nervous system is triggered you know we struggle to maintain objectivity we become overly emotional and that can seep into the advice that we give, which, you know, worst case scenario, it could impact trust and confidence in relationships. So I guess like my first answer, you know, it's really important for advisors to prioritize their own self-care and well-being. And, you know, that's why it's are shaping wealth. You know, we run advisor well-being workshops. Advisor well-being is a priority for us. It is so important, but it starts by advisors consciously prioritizing and taking time out to focus on their self-care their well-being their mental health
1: yeah you know i think it takes uh you know i just want to reiterate i think it takes what you said at the outset viewing this and understanding that this is in fact a helping profession hmm. a lot of a lot of our power uh, lies in our ability to be that listening ear and that empathetic ear, and so when we when we understand that eighty percent, you know, give or take, of what gets communicated in a session with a client is nonverbal, mm-hmm. and we understand that seventy something percent of advisors uh, were, were stressed out last year, yeah. I, I do think it becomes imperative that we look at ourselves and say, okay, what are we doing? What are we doing for sleep, diet, exercise, stress management, wellness? Because there's no chance that if advisors are this stressed, it's not getting passed on to clients in some meaningful way right. yeah. that's gonna hurt client outcomes.
2: Right. Exactly right. So one
1: one more bit on this that's even perhaps more concerning. This is a this is a 2013 study uh, done by a friend of the show, Sonia Luter and her colleague Brad Klantz. And she found, or they found, that 93% of the 56 planners they surveyed um, bore psychological symptoms consistent with medium to high levels of post-traumatic stress, and that 39% experienced severe stress on the level of post-traumatic stress disorder. And this was specifically coming out of the Great Financial Crisis, uh, talking about their experiences during the Great Financial Crisis. So you know, like you said, I I spoke to a reporter recently who was asking why people were so stressed about their money, and I was like, well, look at you know, look at look at the run we've had, right? Mm-hmm. We went from we went from COVID to a war in Europe, you know, the first war in Europe in a, in a generation to now uh, the constant talk of recession and the worry about the you know what the next shoe to drop with. With that. And it just seems like, you know, an advisor who has a 40 or 50 year career, if we think that there's like a true bear market, you know, every five to seven years on average, I mean, a, an advisor with any kind of a career is going to live through five or 10 really, really tough scenarios that have the potential to have to elicit clinical levels of stress and anxiety in them. Mm. What are some practical tips you have for for helping advisors to manage this kind of stress?
2: You know, the, the thing that struck me, Daniel, as you were asking me that question was, isn't that a really sad statistic? Now, it breaks my heart genuinely to know that people, our colleagues in the broadest sense, are struggling so much that it would be classified as kind of pseudo PTSD. No, it's it's just it's 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 it saddens me. It really does, you know. But it's it's why it's so important for financial advisors to do what they can to manage stress and consciously focus on their own mental health. Right now, let me mention Carl Jung again. Right. So one of my favorite Jung quotes is, "Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life, and you will call it fate." So in that vein, I'm suggesting that we need to consciously think about our mental health, What what's impacting us, what's triggering us, and then consider what we might need to do proactively and consciously you know, to make the necessary changes. But allow me to show a bit of vulnerability here, okay? Personal vulnerability. I went through counseling for a period of time. And first off, it was the best thing I've ever done. It's not for everybody, and I get that. But for me, it worked wonders. And going through that process every week, you know, there were three concepts. Is that the right word? Mental models, frameworks, what, whatever the word is, right? There were three things that really, really helped me out that I still kind of practice today. Which goes back to your question, what practical steps can advisors take to help manage stress? This, this, work, this is what works for me. I'm not going to say it works for everybody, but it works for me. You know, the first one was I had to learn how to recognize when I was stressed. Now, I had to recognize my Neil is stressed symptoms, you know, headaches, eye migraines, stomach upsets, fatigue, you know, as well as those kind of those real powerful emotional symptoms like anxiety and irritability. You know, I spent and continue to spend a lot of time working on myself to be able to recognize and name those feelings and man <laughs> it has been so helpful um i also practice self-care though i know i could be a ton better at that you know and i mean things like exercise meditation going for walks with sandy my wife and our dog archie you know basically doing the things i need to recharge the batteries which you know we know helps reduce stress and i think this one this last point is one that i think is the has been the hardest sorry was the hardest thing for me to do but by far has been the most beneficial was i went and looked for professional support i went and looked for the helper and don't get me wrong i have an amazing network of friends and family you know your listeners will also have an amazing network of colleagues friends family but in addition to that and this is the path that i chose we also have access to well-trained, non-judgmental mental health professionals who, and this was very true for me, help you see the world in a clearer way and kind of help you join the dots. And, and you know, just th- as I'm thinking on my feet here, I said three things. Actually, I can think of a fourth one that's just popped into my head, which I really struggle with, if I'm being honest. And you can ask my wife and she'll confirm this, and it's to set boundaries. I kind of mentioned this one earlier on. You know, this is the one that my wife Sandy tells me about all the time, that it's really important for us to set boundaries around our, our work. And that's mainly to prevent burnout. And where I fall down is limiting my work hours. I don't take enough breaks during the day. And I am shocking at taking time off when I need to. But, and it's an important but, I'm getting better at it. And I am consciously working on that. So, so those four things: you know, recognizing what's going on with your mind and body, um, practice self-care, set boundaries, and if you need to, speak to a financial professional. And you know, Daniel, let me finish by saying this, right? So I think this is an important place to leave this question. There are people out there who are willing and able to come alongside you and support you. It takes incredible strength. To step forward and ask for help even though asking for help is still stigmatized and seen as a weakness but you but know this and i'm sure daniel you'll support this statement accepting that you are overwhelmed anxious stressed feeling lonely or disconnected these are perfectly normal human feelings and every one of us struggles at some point and it takes courage to step forward and admit that that is a strength and we should be creating space for people who have the courage to step forward and support them with open arms and an open heart.
1: It's beautifully put Neil and I've I've had the same I've had the same experience the times that I've uh, been in been in therapy is just it it raises every part of my life, you know, and, and especially my relationships. And in addition to what you just said about the bravery that's inherent in seeking this kind of help, I I would echo that one hundred percent. I would also, you know, have a a bit of a reframe, which is I would say therapy is is valuable for financial professionals who don't feel especially stressed and anxious as well, Hmm. because you learn, you you witness new ways of listening, you you witness a, a professional. Listen and react in in new and profound ways. You learn things about yourself that will help you with your clients. So I wouldn't, you know, certainly if you're acutely stressed or anxious, it's a great suggestion, but I would say don't wait, you know, yeah. don't won't even wait for the moment where you're in a bad place. I would say there's a ton, ton of good to be had today for uh, you know what we used to call in the profession sort of the worried well, right? Mm. So you know people who are high functioning, doing great things, but but just want exposure to sort of a new way of of thinking and acting and and listening. And I I loved what you said. <clears throat> excuse me. I love what you said about about recognition too. That's that's something I've I've um, come upon in my old age is that. You know, for me, there's there's so much stigma around stress and mental illness and anxiety and all the things we're talking about today that a lot of times we we kind of push it down. And for me, stress and worry manifest themselves physically far before they're ever sort of brought to my conscious awareness. You know, yeah. my back will hurt, or like I won't I won't be sleeping well, or something like that. And those I've learned uh, are sort of your check engine light. Uh, early warning signs before you go oh wow like i'm not doing
2: well yeah yeah and you know what Daniel? let me share a really quick story years and years ago and i don't mind sharing the story right people who know me like you know this this part of my life in 2008 my wife was was diagnosed with cancer um, and she's fine she got through that thankfully and everything is fine during that period of time i would be asked by people how are you doing neil and and me being the kind of the stoic husband, you know, the the British stiff upper lip mentality, I would say I'm all right. I'm dealing with this. Actually, thank you. And I know you're there if I need support. Thank you. I think I've got this. One day I woke up and I had these kind of red, this red rash across my knuckles and my kneecaps, and I'm thinking, oh, what's that? That's a bit strange. Go and see a doctor, and she says to me, "How are you doing?" And I went, "Yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks." And she said, well, your body's telling me you're not, because what you've got is what's called pompholix eczema. And it's an adult eczema that only comes out in extreme stress. Uh, Your body's telling me that you're highly stressed. So you can tell me all you want verbally, you're fine. I'm telling you, you're not. And And if at that point I'd listened to those words, I would have gone and sought professional help at that point. It took me till the year 2022 and and the reason why i went to see a counselor was initially triggered by grief it, it took me that long and then when i went there i started to unpack my story you start realizing that man i could have done this and i should have done this a long 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 time ago when actually i genuinely felt i was fine because here i am now having to unpack a ton of stuff but you know daniel i i hear what you're saying for me i feel lighter i feel rebooted by being by going through that process so i'm a massive advocate of looking for the helpers and using people to come alongside you and help you when you need it
1: you know thank you thank you for sharing that story neil i think it's a it's a perfect example of the wisdom of the body and and some of the ways that we can get these early warning signs mm. and have to learn to to see them and i guess my hope is that as people listen to you and listen to this story Is that we can kind of take some of our own advice because there are certainly diy investors and there are people who sort of uh you know poo-poo the idea of working with a financial planner or financial advisor and we have great great responses for that right we have great responses and we can we can easily articulate the value of working with with someone who is adept at these things and someone who's a professional in their sphere Right but I think when it comes to our own mental health and our own wellness we're we're too quick to ignore our own advice and we try and insource everything and we try to keep that stiff upper lip and, right. and we try and power through and, and not you know not make other people feel uncomfortable by telling them like you know hey my wife is sick and I'm not doing great yeah. uh, and and so I hope I guess I hope we'll we'll take our own advice because we're so good at, at talking about why other people need our help, and I think we're much less good at, at recognizing when we need help ourselves. Exactly right. So uh, Neil, the last sort of formal question I have for you is: you are, you know, if I had to, if I had to think of a of a word to describe you, <laughs> um, and that, are you ready? Are you ready?
2: Be kind. Be kind.
1: No, i it's very kind. <laughs> it's it's thoughtful i think you're i think you're a very thoughtful person in in every sense of the word i think you're you. thoughtful thoughtful and considerate about others and their and their feelings but i think you're also thoughtful about our little world of behavioral finance and mm. and first you know human first financial planning so being the thoughtful person that you are where do you think we're headed like where will we be five ten years from now i know we've we've talked in our private conversations Mm. about the groundswell of enthusiasm for this kind of work the work that we both do and i'm curious where you think it's headed in the next decade
2: i think i'm excited to see and mainly because it's been where my focus has been for the last 15 years um i'm excited to see where neuroscience continues to take us and what it continues to teach us you know i think there is so much about the brain that we still don't know and the more we learn the more kind of aha moments we have Um, that's exciting you know and i think the advances in neuroscience help us get rid of horrible words like irrational which i despise um, because it kind of gives us the evidence that we're not irrational we're normal And it it also gives us the framework to kind of stop us overly focusing on biases as if it's something that we can fix. Spoiler alert, we can't. So brain science is showing us the way and it's giving us some amazing answers to long held questions. And I absolutely love that. So I'm excited to see where that takes us. I'm also latterly really kind of excited and love seeing how the work that you know, we started by kind of Marty Seligman, you know, the positive psychology movement. I'm interested to see how that develops. And actually, that's a really, that's actually probably a great way to kind of tie a bow around this entire discussion because one of the things I've been reading about recently, and this is incredibly timely that you asked this question, is what Marty Seligman calls post traumatic growth. And it's his idea that we can experience positive change as a result of going through difficult experiences. You know, and he wrote, and I can't can't remember where it was, but when I read it, I was kind of like, yes, that's it. You know, he wrote that it's also not helpful to think of people as broken or damaged by their experiences. Instead, what we should do is consciously focus on the strengths and resilience that individuals have developed as a result of their experiences. You know, and if we then work on those strengths, it's then that we can grow and we can thrive. And I really love that as a concept. I'm keen to see how that develops in all of the, or, or works its way into the work that we all do. And it just so happens to play into pretty much everything that we have talked about today.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love the idea of post-traumatic growth as, as well as Seligman's work broadly You know, I gave, um, I was with Tim Maurer. I know, I know he's a friend of, of of your organization. I was with Tim Maurer yesterday and, uh, co-presenting with him a couple of times. And it really struck me how the conversation, the conversation in our little world has largely mirrored the growth of psychology broadly. Like, you know, psychology began with the study of brokenness and, and, you know, yeah, brokenness and, and dysfunction. And The study of behavioral finance did the very same thing. Like the the first thing that we did was we broke with traditional econometrics by cataloging all the ways that people were biased and sort of suboptimal. And that was, you know, it's important to know those things. It's important to sort of avoid those derailers, if you will. Yep. But it's it's not as empowering as it could be. And it was, you know, well over a hundred years into the growth of psychology as a discipline. That Seligman and, and others like him came along and introduced the study of not what makes us broken, but the study of what makes us whole, and the study of what makes us happy, and and the study of what makes us uh, love. And I, I see, you know, your work, the work that you're doing at shaping wealth, the work I'm doing at Orion, I think is is moving in the direction of how can we figure out what enough looks like how can we help people flourish how can we help them spend money in ways that make them happy how can we tie money and meaning together and i think ultimately that's a much more enriching conversation than cataloging all the ways we're screwed up and and fallen
2: i mean yeah you know daniel imagine two you know two conversations a conversation with a client where we tell them that you know everything that they're experiencing their emotions the way they are navigating the world, their anxieties, their dreams, their aspirations, all those things are perfectly normal human responses to the world around them, right? Imagine that's so that's one conversation. And then another conversation is to tell people that they're irrational, that they're biased, that their behavior is bad, and there's a better way of behaving. You know, You can tell immediately just by the words I'm using know the, the responses to the of those clients one client is going to say oh he understands me he gets me the other client is immediately going to go on the back foot in a defensive way and kind of go I, i'm not biased i don't i don't make bad decisions i'm not irrational you know and and that's never a great place to start so why i love seligman's work so much and why we're fans of shaping wealth of his work is that it gives us a framework to accept that human beings are just normal and, every th- and the way we navigate the world is unique to us. And if sometimes that doesn't turn out great, it doesn't mean that we're irrational or we're, we're decision makers. It just means that something we've done could have been done in a better way. And we learn by that we, and we develop and we thrive and we adapt and all of those things. And so, you know, approaching all of our relationships and, and our human interactions from a positive psychology standpoint, a viewpoint, whatever the correct word is, um, can only be a good thing because we meet other humans where they're at, and that place is called Normalville. It means, yeah, I, I'm always looking
1: for the name of the podcast. This <laughs> to be called a place called Normalville. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh man. I yes. want to move that. I'm going to move that tomorrow. I love on
1: the dude. I, I uh, I'm, not <laughs> all, I'm not allowed there. I was kicked out. I was kicked out. <laughs> of long ago. Long ago. I, we can't be neighbors. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's funny going back to what you just said. I think about, you know, these surveys where they've, you know, they said surveys of clients where it's asked things like, you know, what are the different things an advisor does and how much do clients value them? And when they ask things like, you know, how, huh, helps keep me from making emotional, irrational decisions. No one endorses that, right? Like no, no clients endorse that as a value they want from their financial advisor. And that's why advisors shouldn't lead with that. And then some folks will go, look, you know, clients don't want the behavioral stuff. But if you look at the top of those lists, it's things like helps me articulate and outline my goals and values, like helps you know, gives me peace of mind. Like that's behavioral finance too. That's why we just have to frame it. We just have to frame it correctly. And I think when we frame it as a negative and and frame people as as so broken and fallible, they very naturally push back against that. So I think you're right on. So Neil, this has been awesome. It's it's always a pleasure to have it an excuse to to talk with uh, you know a, a great buddy and a great thinker. If if people want to learn more about your work and, and read your stuff, where can folks find you?
2: Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter. Um, is where I'm most active. I'm not a massive social media fan, but I'm on Twitter, so that's at Neil Beige. Um, you can follow the work we're doing at Shaping Wealth at Shaping Wealth, or by visiting you know visiting our website shapingwealth.com. dot um, They are there are th- those are the places where I tend to hang out most.
1: Neil Beige, we'll see you in London soon
2: hope so. Take care.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioural finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.